Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. I'm joined today by a leader described as opening a different front in the fight against global warming. Mark Campanali is the founder of the Carbon Tracker Initiative, an independent think tank that looks at the impact of clean energy transition and a move away from fossil fuels on the financial markets. The aim is to change how financial analysts and fund managers determine investment risk and mobilize shareholders to align their business priorities with the climate agenda. And as a co-founder of Planet Tracker, Mark's goal is to align capital markets with natural ecological limits to growth based on his unburnable carbon thesis, which identified that up to 80% of proven fossil fuel reserves are effectively unusable if we are to stay within the planet's carbon budget. Tell us more, Mark. Welcome to Changemakers. Thank you, Michael. Delighted to be with you today. Let's start there, actually, in terms of the thesis, the unburnable carbon thesis. I mean, I've been reading about it, and I think it's something that, that listeners will be really interested to learn more about. Well, sure. Look, I tell you where it started. Back in the 1990s, when I was working in in the City of London in fund management, um, we were seeing a lot of oil and gas companies and coal companies come onto the stock exchange. A lot of investors getting excited about it. Whilst at the same time, the science around um, climate change was just becoming much, much clearer. We can't burn all the fossil fuels. And so how could it be that these companies were succeeding? And of course, what they were saying is, well, our company is not the one that's going to be producing the coal um, that the world doesn't need. It's all the others, and, and certainly we shouldn't be worrying about it now. And so I thought, well, actually, we better double check. Is, is it the companies like Exxon and Shell and uh, Chevron? Uh, is it uh, are they the ones that we should be concerned about? So the maths that we ended up doing, not can I say, not for another like 10, 15 years when I left the city and set up Garden Tracker, is we just took the world's top 200 publicly traded coal, coal oil and gas companies. We looked at their reserves and mm. their resources, the, their, what they're going to get next worked out how much carbon dioxide is sitting on the ground in the reserves and said if they were all to divert all their projects, how much would it increase warming? And the answer we found was it would be enough to increase the world's warming by two or three degrees, which we've not seen for obviously for millions of years, and that most of it would have to stay in the ground and that all the business plans of these major companies that we owned in our pension funds were absolutely holding the water. And that led to this idea of the carbon bubble and stranded assets. So it was, it was to me, it seemed very an obvious piece of analysis mm. to do. It's just that no one, no one had put the numbers together in that kind of precise way. And the evidence needs to be listened to and actioned. Do, do you feel, I mean, I mean, we certainly hear a lot of speeches and I've interviewed a few of the sort of fossil fuel uh, major CEOs. There's lots of good talk about, you know, sort of green industrial revolution and about net zero and about sort of doing the right thing. What does the evidence show? I mean, you're, you're tracking this, you're looking at it. I mean, do, do people yeah. do people look at this as your, your kind of ideas about, do they look at the thesis as, as the heresy or the answer? Yeah, well, yeah. That's an interesting one. I think they agree now with you. I think everyone agrees with the analysis that publicly traded companies, the ones we own in our pension funds and our investment plans, they're the ones that are going to be affected by this. That's now clear. It's also now clear that this is not a problem for 2040, 2050. It's on the watch of the chief execs of these companies today, mm. not, not some other time. It's today. That, that they have to make the decisions. The dilemma they face is that they, they don't want to be the one that announces to the world we're giving up our production rights. They all want to be the one, they all want to be the last man standing. They all say it's it's not us, it's them. Mm. And they're worried that uh, that somehow they're going to be penalised or they're going to miss out. So so they, they feel, I think many of them feel caught in a in, in a, some kind of logic trap. And, and so you get hesitancy, you get reluctance, you get... 
you get inertia, the inertia, the big thing that holds back change from happening, the resistance to doing things differently. Mm. I mean, and I suppose it leads to kicking the can down the road in terms of the decisions that, that you need to make. I mean, well, what, does that, what does that say about leadership, do you think, Mark? I mean, what, I mean, you know, a lot of these people are leading some of the most, you know, most successful companies in the world. Yeah, I mean, the joke is, and, and it's not really a joke because it's, it's true, we hear it a lot, is that the oil and gas executives always say once they've retired, oh, we need to do things very, very differently. And they always mm. say once they've left the role of chief exec, it's a brave chief exec that stands out and does something differently. And and one of the you know chief execs that uh, I admire leads a, a leads a British oil and gas company has said he agrees that there is this thing called a carbon budget. There's a finite amount of CO two you can put into the atmosphere. He also agrees we have to cut production. But others within the industry have told me you know when I meet them, oh this guy's out on a limb. He's isolated. He's not inside the pack. He's seen as a maverick. And so, yeah, to make doing the right thing involves taking risks. And mm. one of the other things that you'll hear is uh, this phrase, IBG, YBG. You know, I'll Tell be, us about that. I'll be gone. You'll be gone. Mm. Um, why, why should I be worrying about this? Because by the time this comes home to roost, I'll be gone. And by the way, you'll be gone too. So let's So the, the ultimate in short-termism. Well, I wish it was just short-termism. I, I, I think it's the fear of being seen to be different or to do things differently or to be outside of the pack, and which is what this executive. But seems but there to are be. other there are other sectors, Mark. I mean, you know, I've, been, I've interviewed people like Paul Polman, who who obviously took the, yeah. took the helm at Unilever, and, and and a range of others, you know, who you know from from finance through to FMCG, who have have seen the fact that you know they can't get on they've got to build new businesses whether it's around the sustainable development goals or whether it's trying to be a force for good or however you frame it yeah. is that they have they have rebuilt businesses or, or attempted to rebuild businesses is that going on when you look at these fossil fuel firms when they well, talk about this green future yeah, or, or, is, I mean, or is it greenwashing i mean you know paul Pullman and Unilever did a terrific job and i'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive fan of, of what, what he achieved but as the recent criticism Unilever has, has faced is, does mayonnaise need to have a purpose? Which was the question Terry Smith, yes, and Smithco, the fund management company, asked. Didn't but mayonnaise fossil fuels need to have a purpose. Doesn't need to have a purpose. Now let's have a look at fossil fuels. We don't. We're talking about an industry that, apart from a limited amount of complex plastics and and interesting other uh, industrial uses, is that we don't need. The fossil fuel industry in the way that we've got it now we don't need coal-fired power we don't you know i i've said this in the past and i'm not the first to have said it that we we're, we're the first generation in human history that doesn't need to burn something either to heat ourselves or to cook we don't need to burn something to cook and we don't need to, to burn something to transport ourselves or to power ourselves mm. we can do we can do all of those things using electrons Mm. Now, what that means is that when you look at coal production and oil and gas production, where, where actually most of it involves burning it, we, we just don't need to do that anymore. The tech, we've got cheaper, uh, more efficient, more reliable technologies. Renewables are cheaper now in most parts of the world than than traditional fossil fuels. Mm. It's just a challenge of can we build it? But, but I suppose what I'm thinking about as a listener listening to this interview and, and looking down at their oil and gas bills and, and seeing this sort of like, you know, huge sort of ratcheting up of, of costs that are going yeah. on. I mean, just yeah. how does this sort of stack up in, in that environment where, you know, there is there is clearly an, an emergency around around the yeah, sort of yeah, well, production of the and answer, need? Does, does it change the, the argument? 
Yeah, the answer to that is not more fossil fuels. The answer to that is actually get off dependency on fossil fuels. I mean, you're on a, you're on a market of very limited sellers and multiple buyers, which is why which is why you know we've got Russia holding Europe over a barrel, particularly Germany, because of forty percent of Europe's gas needs come from Russia. Now, if if we had a situation where you had thousands of buyers and thousands of sellers, that's what a market is actually. Mm. Um, all those super profits and that kind of monopoly control disappears, and which is, of course is what you get with with renewable energy and and what we know is is that fossil fuels are basically a commodity it's driven by supply and demand and it's and it's a uh, expensive to produce and it's a finite amount whereas um, renewables are te- essentially it's a technology that gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to the point where you can produce and use um, your own electricity at the point at the point of use you can generate solar on, on your roof you can put an electric battery in your car in your house you can store electricity from your car during the day and at peak powers, you can sell it back into the grid. We're going to have a whole new system of, of distributed power where you're going, to have, you're going to have all those monopoly supplies like the Saudis and, and the Russians are no longer going to be there. And, and, mm. and by the way, it's because technology gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, uh, which we know from phones and, and, and TVs and, and cameras and stuff like that, there will be a dividend to, to energy consumers in the form of lower prices. That's what will happen when we get off fossil fuels. And, and how quickly is it coming? Because it is coming. I mean, there, there are, th- there are changes. Is. There are amazing innovations. You, you know, you look at things yeah. like the Earthshot Prize. You look at the yeah, debates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, business on display very much at things like COP26. But I mean, how quickly is the wheel turning, do you think, Mark? And I mean, and when, when, because it strikes me that a lot of the things that we're facing today, I mean, yeah. as you've rightly said, are they feel very painful. You know, that, that actually change feels a painful thing to do yeah. in an economy economy that is so sort of or in economies that are so dependent upon traditional fossil fuels yeah i mean i'm afraid to say that i wish it was happening faster than it is but but nonetheless it, it is happening happening very rapidly now just to give an example in the uk let's see we can pick global figures electric car electric vehicle car sales were what one two three percent of vehicle sales in 2018 which is only four years ago Today, it's more like 15% and going to 20% in some economies like the UK and Norway. Now, of that, within four years, to go from 3% to, say, let's pick the middle of that number, 18%. Now, let's let's roll out another two years. Is it plausible to see electric vehicle sales going from 18% to, say, 35%? And I think the answer to that is very, very clearly yes. Mm. Now, at that point, now, given that a lot of cars in the UK are, are leased, you, you, you lease your car for three years and you hand it back, if these are electric cars and they're going to be cheaper and more reliable and they're, they're cheaper to run than a petrol car, I can see a lot of people making that switch very, very quick. Power is a little, power is a little bit different and heating is obviously a lot more different than that. But but the technologies are there. It's just a matter of deploying. I mean, I mean the technology is there, but I suppose the question is, when does capital follow the idea of the technology? Because, you know, we're talking on on the morning where, you know, Russian incursion into or invasion into Ukraine has led to a stock market wobble that has been partially put off by the rise in the share prices of the oil majors that actually... You know, if you're looking at the hero stocks this morning, they're, they're probably names that, that, that will not be part of the answers that, that you're thinking about. 
Yeah, and then all they're doing is riding a, this is the problem of commodities, they're riding a commodity boom over uh, over something where you can get out of the ground at 10 bucks and sell it at 100 bucks. Mm. I mean, they, of course, they're pumping money, but this is only so longer true if, if the world continues to use uh, a technology which is essentially redundant now, which is the internal combustion engine. So when people look at really what's going on and this whole thing about you need to burn something to heat yourself well that ain't true anymore you don't need to you don't need to burn something so it's about a, it's the matter now really of this scaling and deploying the technology i mean the, the story that was in yesterday's paper which caught my eye was was the australian uh, internet tycoon a guy who um, seemed yes to be it's that, that australia's new trial who's worth 25 billion who said right we're going to buy this power company we're going to close down this coal-fired power and I'm going to invest my billions, which he has, into large-scale solar and, and battery storage across Australia. I mean, you know, I looked at that and thought, well, like, you know, that's wonderful. It's, mm. it's extraordinary. Now that, if you look at the planning, there's more, more renewables in planning ready to go than Australia actually needs. And when you speak to this entrepreneur, he said, well, what are you going to do with all of Australia's cheap cheap?" electricity that it's going to he said well yeah we're, we're going to wire it up through to singapore mm. but, but, but i suppose, so, so I suppose you, you look at australia moves from being a coal exporter to being an energy exporter it just happens to be exporting electrons not not physical coal is it, it but but alongside that i mean they, those are you know there are those are good examples of where where change are happening but there are also i suppose the policy makers the governments that yeah, you yeah. know that, that don't make those changes and, and i mean you mentioned the australian government i mean i mean they they have been you know fairly firm in their in in their sort of energy policies over over the past the past years not in a way that has made them particularly popular well, elsewhere I mean, so, but i mean so, so, so would you if you if you were looking at the taxes um that you are collecting on on these huge industries exporting coal to 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 china employment taxes corporation taxes and so on and of course you're looking at that going well if the world comes off coal um that's a huge hole in australia's tax bill but then this you know as we said this young entrepreneur but comes along and says, no, actually, I'll well, I'll fill the the tax uh, hole by um, us becoming a global supply of clean energy, and that's how we have to think about it. The policymakers, like just in the UK, you know, just last week, people were saying, well, the answer to the high gas prices is to introduce fracking into the UK. Well, the mm. answer to high gas prices is get off dependency but, on gas. But yeah. is your is your thesis based on? the inevitability that there comes a crunch moment where there is going to be pain in the transition and we are just going to have to take it as a society to get what we want well, in terms of what comes next. Well, look, there's going to, I, my view, there's more gain than pain. And, right. and what it boils down to is the economics. It, the, the clean technology is just basically cheaper. That's what it boils down to. Mm. Is why, why would a consumer pay more for something that could go get higher and get more costlier? when you can switch to a cheaper technology that's more reliable. But, but and, I suppose, um, but, but then, it, then and, it, I suppose. and that's that's the reason. Why, I mean, I got into a car when I was I was at, actually out in Singapore the other year, just before lockdown. I was giving giving a lecture, and I and uh, I asked a taxi driver. I said, "I'm an electric car." I said, "And this, I'm not. This was not a." Uh, this was not a university-educated car driver, so it wasn't an intellectual discussion. So I said to him, um, why, why was that? He said, oh, yeah, I was spending 100 bucks a week on petrol. With this electric car, I'm spending 10. Mm. And it was as simple as that. And, and now, now you roll that out across the world and look at the savings to the consumer from the, from the, revolution, from the clean energy revolution. 
is unstoppable. If it is unstoppable, I mean, you, you've 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 made the point that you know rampant in your words, rampant greenwashing has to come to an end. I mean, if the economics are so yeah. are so compelling here. Why doesn't talk necessarily lead to good action? It's for their, every reason why you know people are resistant to change. Why do people stick with a bank that gives them poor service, charges them a fee when there's one just around the corner that will give them better service and charges them no fee? I mean, it's the it, old it's, it's, it's inertia. It's inertia. People won't with their move, and so you actually have to find things that people do habitually. That where these choices can be made. And that's the reason why we talk about, I talk about, you know, car, the car leasing market is a classic example of that. Mm. Next time a brochure comes through and somebody says, well, the, the internal combustion engine is going to cost me £300 a month to lease it, whereas the electric vehicle one with the same fittings and the same style is going to cost me £200 a month to, to lease. And by the way, one costs 100 a month to, to, to run, the other one costs £10 a month to run. You've got to make that choice. And we have to have the simplicity of these choices, which is why if you look at home building in the UK, until relatively recently, you didn't have to have an electric charger installed in your drive, assuming you're going to have an electric car. You didn't have to have home insulation. Or you didn't have to have solar because the assumption was, was that if you want those things, consumers will go out and retrofit it, which is, of course, what people don't want to do. Mm. We have to have policy that says we're going to have homes built which are properly insulated, that are going to have solar already installed on the roof, they're already going to have ground source heat pumps, and it's all built into the cost of the home. And when you go to your mortgage with your bank, all of this is already done for you. Today, if you want, to, if you want solar on your roof, you're going to have to go out and pay for it. You know? Right. But of course, consumers are going to go, well, I haven't got the 10 grand. You know, who's got that kind of money to do the ground source heat pump, which is whatever. But, but so I suppose... We, we need I to suppose... normalise and standardise these, these these consumer choices. Right. So 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 those are the things, I guess, the frameworks that are, are going to come to actually make those choices easier. But mm. a lot of this also is about personal choice. And, you know, we spoke about, you know, the sort of the battle against inertia. And, yeah. you know, this, this whole series is about change makers you are an ashoka change maker and you know one of the things i want to get into is well why did you leave you know you had a, a highly successful career in the city and you've chosen to walk down a path less less trod if you know what i mean in terms of something you know a a, a choice to actually go out and do something differently i read that you said that when you were a teenager i had terrible nightmares that the world was on fire yeah. Me and a group of people were streaming away from this scene of mass devastation and disaster. What what drove the premonition? What, where did these early seeds begin? And what were, if you were to look at the tipping points, what are, what would you draw out as lessons, perhaps that, that others might want to think about? Well, I mean, these are these are very very difficult questions to 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 think through. I think you know, I grew up in an era where the the apocalypse of a nuclear war was very. I, you know, I was I was at university in the nineteen eighties mm. when still in the middle of the Cold War, and there was a sense of a world on edge. And but that also because I was also at that time part of the peace movement that that it didn't need to be, and that humanity would rally behind something sensible and do something different. I first wrote about or learnt about the issue of global warming or climate change when I was at university in York, um, and I, I ended up being an editor contributor to a, a magazine called The Green Insurgent. This is 1985, where, where global warming was a story, and, and that was my first awareness of it. And then 
leading up to the Earth Summit um, in Rio de Janeiro in, in 1992, where I first you know, connected the dots around deforestation and uh, the use of fossil fuels. So, so probably the, there was that backdrop. But, but also, I, I'm kind of... But, but I suppose, so, so if I can stop you there, Mark, so, so there was an inherent activist in, in you know, at university, you were a peace activist, that you, you had got a sense of problems that needed solving. I'm just trying to think about what are the vital ingredients that, yeah. that get you to here. I also, th- I mean, I don't want to overrate this because because I because I don't is I think to an to an extent, I mean, faith also came into it with for me. You, where, where does that come from? I mean, sometimes you, some people are born with it, or they they find it, or whatever. It was just there, and and that, that sense of of actually of trying to make the world a better place, or or or, or, or work together with humanity in resolving these problems was was there. I mean, I, I came from a from an Italian family that um, was was a radical family sort of catholic and but also my grandfather was very active in the italian communist party that's an interesting mixture growing up in a in communist a, catholics <laughs> well i mean quite radical you know um, because they're, they're it's a it's an interesting formula now you know if I went out into the street, I don't think you or you anyone that knew me that you know that were to me or met me wouldn't describe me like that. But, but, but that's but, but but if you're looking for that inner driver as a as a young man as and growing up, I, I I have to be honest and say that that was huge hugely important. Is it fair to say then that, that faith gave you the sense of responsibility, custodianship of the planet? Is that is that is that is that, is that what what you took from it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but also at the same time recognizing that these are not things you do. You, you can't do these things together by yourself. Mm. You, you go you go with others, and you, you and you find ways to work it through. And, and I suppose faith has also, Mark, given you very, very practical action and, and indeed papal blessing in terms of taking the oil majors um, to meet Pope Francis. I was privileged to be part of a group of a, of a small convening of about 30, 40 chief execs of oil and gas companies and heads of fund management companies to go meet with Pope Francis of the Vatican, which we've done on, on a number of occasions now to have a conversation about climate change and a very honest and open conversation. And Pope Francis, to be in the room, them, talking to them about about these things of profound consequences for humanity and the future of the planet was very humbling, and and uh, I have the highest admiration and respect for this particular pope. And, and I think the oil and gas company chief execs were delighted to open up a little bit about mm. how they see things from a personal perspective. Do you think something like that makes a difference to that to those those leaders of those companies in terms of? I do without I th- without a doubt as you know as more more than one of them actually said we have children we have grandchildren and of course we think about the future and 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 that is something that a conversation that the Pope Francis was able to have you know extraordinary actually here's a word that I don't think my any of my friends would, would would use to describe me you have to do it humbly and with a lot of reflection and mm. and, um, and don't don't big up or talk about things which are which you don't know much about, and, and also don't take yourself too seriously, Michael. But but, but I get this, which is which is a crime. So you have to do this with humour. You have to do it with humour, but 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 I think I mean sorry to go back back a step to the sort of slightly darker point, which is that you know yeah. growing up with a sense of you know the sort of the nuclear threat of the eighties. Yeah. I mean I, I you know I spent my teens in the eighties. I grew up in Sheffield. I mean there was even a BBC show called Threads that you'll remember, which was about you know the city being obliterated by a nuclear bomb. So I remember that that sense of of, of Premonition. But do you think those ingredients, though, have made you an optimist about the possibilities of change, or do you approach oh, this yeah. from a more pessimistic point no, of view? No, 
and I totally optimistic. I, I mean, I mean, everyone has highs and lows, but but to by and large, I'm I'm always upbeat. I'm, I I think these are things we can deal with. We have to recognise the scale of the challenge. I don't think we can be naive about it. But at the same time, you, you, if 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 you if you look at the world and go, oh, this I can't deal with any of this, and then go and hide yourself back in a hole, you can't live life like that. So no, I, I live life very optimistically, very very positively. But also, I love that phrase. Was it Napoleon about uh, how does he fight his battles? About we always marches to the sound of guns firing. Whenever I hear of a challenge or a problem that that captures my imagination and think, no, we can deal with this. This is something we can deal with. I'm always going to be marching towards it, not away from it. Yeah, but he also said, bring me lucky generals. I suppose people people that could well, people that could make, make the, the change. You know, Carbon Tracker, the truth is, the Carbon Tracker, the organisation, is made up of a series of extremely smart people who wanted to go on the journey and and also bring their bring their message and their story to it and mm. and it wouldn't be where it was today without without the colleagues important people that that in my life worked with me right at the beginning nick robbins and james leeton and jeremy leggett and alice chapel and people that and then john grayson who runs carbon tracker now i mean these these it's i i just i i, I just covered i've just caught a ride off the off the back of of their tremendous commitment of truth mm. to the but, but i suppose the thing about that experience of growing up in an in an era where you know risk was very apparent very real you know it feels that when you listen to you know listen to a lot of the kind of you know the, the speeches and a lot of the publicity around something like cop 26 is that of course you know that sense of the ominous risk of a world running out of time a world you know yeah. a world a world world writing checks it can no longer cash i mean yeah i mean in I suppose in terms of, you know, sort of leading towards my last question to you is that what gives you hope right now in terms of when when you look at, you know, I suppose the fierce facts that you're dealing with of, you know, deforestation, of all the things that, you know, are having to happen to sustain an unsustainable planet right now, in terms of the opportunity for change, the opportunity to create the better future. I suppose a last comment on that in terms of a world to save and how you might do it. What, what, what's the attitude, I suppose, that, that we need to take forward in, in that fight? Okay, so you listeners will learn that I, I spend a lot of time working in the world of finance. And, and historically and traditionally, finance was seen as the enemies to dealing to, to progress. And the thing that's changed that gives me hope is that actually people who are working in the field of finance now have credible platforms, GFANS, Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, Climate Action 100, groups like that. We've They now have a platform to express how actually finance can be part of the solution to these challenges. And, and you've got executive teams inside the banks, inside the asset management companies supporting this goal of net zero, of decarbonisation. Whereas in the past, people would have thought, well, they're the ones standing in the way. Now, there's some very tough decisions. When do we, ha- how quickly do we stop funding coal? When do we stop funding oil and gas and so on? How do we switch to, to the new economy? These, these are the questions today. But, and we're in the middle of that conversation. So we're very privileged, from my point of view, to, to be living at a time when the city 20, 30 years ago, when I started, when it was, couldn't be less interested in this, to today, it's, 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 it's the top of agenda of every, mm. every important boardroom. Just last week, I was asked in to present with colleagues to a major listed fund management company listed on the London Stock Exchange, looking after 30, 40 billion of assets. I was presenting to the board, to the chairman of the board and his colleagues, and I had an hour and a half. I mean, 
Were you, you talking really, the same language, Mark? Did you, you get a sense that they got it? That they well, they wanted to know. They wanted to explore. They wanted to get our opinions and views. They wanted to see the data, the analysis. And and I thought, you know, the idea that I and, and in fact, in two weeks' time, I'm or weeks' time, I'm I'm having dinner with the chief exec of of a major UK bank within a small dinner with a few people. Now, 10 years ago, I mean, that would have never have happened. And if you ask me when I started off as a young man 30 years ago, if if I if I'll be talking about climate change to the to the chief exec of, uh, of in a small private dinner of a major bank, I would I would have laughed. I thought no, that's ridiculous, but, but of course I am. Um, mm. And that just goes to show the extent of the of interest in this topic. Mm. Well, you are indeed. And there, though, we must leave it. Mark Campanelli, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael, uh, for, for joining you today. It's been yeah, a an absolute pleasure. And, th- and thank you for joining me on Changemakers. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works. And if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 